Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardo. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast featuring commentary and insight on salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, the Supreme Court remains in repose as its annual summer recess continues. During these summer breaks for nearly the past decade, our first guest, Kadar Bhatia, an associate with Greenberg Toreg, has compiled an array of different statistical analyses for the widely followed Supreme Court coverage website, SCOTUS blog. In these annual stat packs, Mr. Bhatia has kept track of a number of different phenomena, including the time the court takes from cert grant to oral argument and an oral argument to opinion issuance. He's kept track of a number of times and who has been a part of five to four votes, uh, he tracks justice agreement numbers and how circuit courts fare when their cases are brought on appeal, and also keeps tabs on the advocates who appear before the Supreme Court. Mr. Bhatia is here now to tell us a bit more about his work and to discuss this past Supreme Court term and some of the most interesting statistics that it gave rise to. Mr. Bhatia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. You're an attorney out in, in New York with Green Pretoric, but folks uh, might be more familiar with the work that you do uh, for SCOTUS blog as a contributor and, and curator of their annual uh, statistical analysis of, of the, the previous year's term, the stat packs. Uh, as they're known, those statistical analyses have been something that that, that site has done for a while, and, and you've been part of it going back uh, several years now. Before we get into a, a review of this this past term on a quantitative basis, I could ask you a couple questions just about how you came to be involved with, with the stat packs. So how, how exactly did you become to be a part of the stat packs, and how did they come to be? I, I believe they, they predate you on the site, right, by a little bit? That's right. That's right. I started a little blog where I wrote about the Supreme Court, I guess, 10 years ago now. I started in 2007. And it's st- it was then a pretty small world of people who wrote about the Supreme Court. So I knew about Supreme uh, SCOTUS blog, and they knew about me. And slowly, sort of my interests and expertise turned into Supreme Court statistics. And then in 2010, um, I sort of had some talks with SCOTUS blog, and I was always a big fan. Um, I, I think I, I must have learned about the Supreme Court really through Lyle Denniston's sort of detailed inside baseball reporting. And so I was always a big fan of SCOTUS blog. And so in 2010, they asked if I was interested in helping out with the stat pack. And so I said, of course. So uh, in for October term 09, which ended in 2010, I did a little bit of an addendum to their stat pack. And then after that, I sort of took over. You, you've been part of it then for, for several years, several Supreme Court terms. Then when you're when you're putting them together, what um, what do you see as the, the principal purpose or the main purposes that the, the stat packs serve, either perhaps for practitioners in front of the Supreme Court or, or just folks that are they're interested in it, just court watchers generally? I think for uh, practitioners, I think one of the biggest benefits is sort of telling their clients and telling people how the Supreme Court operates and sort of what's unusual and what's not. For example, in our stat pack, we show that the average number of days between an opinion and oral argument and an opinion is about 90 days. So you know at day 30, you don't need to be panicking. And you know at day uh, 200, that maybe your case stands out from the rest. Um, For court watchers, I think it's really hopefully a one play, one-stop shop for sort of many of the common questions about the Supreme Court, like how many cases were granted this year, how many times has someone argued, um, is it usual to have this kind of five to four split? So I think for court watchers, that's journalists, that's law professors, that's law students or attorneys, um, I hope it's a helpful way to 
to get some of your basic Supreme Court questions answered. So that's kind of what I have in mind when I make it is what are people thinking about? What are people interested in? And I try to keep it sort of updated with some of our the contemporary questions. The setbacks go up at the end of the term, but do you keep track of the different statistics throughout the term, or do you synthesize them at, at the end? And then if you do, the latter, uh, are you ever sort of surprised by, by what you see when you, you do complete the syntheses uh, as they might tell a different story than what you saw sort of throughout the term? I put the stat pack together throughout the term, so I enter each case more or less as it shows up. Um, I use a program called Numbers, it's for Mac, um, and so it's sort of a database slash publishing platform. Um, so I enter the cases as they come in throughout the year, and sometimes we've done earlier stat packs before the end of the year. Um, in the last few years, they've sort of been pushed towards the end, but we sometimes will start the stat packs in February or January or February to, to show how the court, how the term is developing. So we hopefully aren't too surprised by the end of the year, but there's always some big changes at the end. During your, your time working on the StatPex, I know from, from looking at them, some stats have been tracked the entire time you've been working on them, but some have come and gone. Um, what, uh, what has sort of explained some of the stats that have, have been a part of the, the process for a long time, and, and uh, how come some have, have come, come and gone and stopped being uh, tracked over the, the period? I think some get not, they get sort of knocked out for a few different reasons. Sometimes I'll create some charts to address an issue that's come up recently and then seven or eight years later it's not quite as relevant. So an example is that in 2007 the Supreme Court packed all of it was sort of slow to the grant cases throughout the term and as a result it had to compress the briefing schedules for certain cases. So it was an issue for those litigants. They had fewer days to file their brief than they would ordinarily and they had to have an oral argument sooner. So I created some charts that showed um, the number of days between when a case is granted an oral argument. Eventually, that wasn't really on people's minds, and I think the chart was more confusing than it was worth. So this year, actually, I got rid of it about 10 years after um, the Supreme Court had had that trouble. So sometimes they just get knocked out because it's less relevant than it used to be, or it might be more confusing than anything else. Or I just take another look at it a year later and decide, maybe I can do it a better way. And then other times they get knocked out because we just can't do it right. Uh, we can't do it in a statistics in a way that makes sense and is fair to everyone and is cohesive. So one example of that is many years ago when I did daily writ, um, I cat cataloged wins and losses for each for many of the top advocates over the course of the term. All the advocates who argued more than twice or two or more times. Um, eventually, it became a little bit difficult to categorize what's a win and what's a loss. If you're in a Miki, what's a win or what's a loss? Um, so we kind of cut that out of the way because it was just hard to do in a way that, that made sense. So those are the reasons they get knocked out and hopefully everything else stays. Sure. Yeah. On, on the flip side, several different, uh, statistical analyses have been a part of the stat packs, um, for the, the nearly period of a decade you've been working on, uh, on these. Um, of those, are there any stats that you find particularly interesting to track? Um, I think some of the ones that I find the most interesting are the justice agreement rates. Those are always very interesting about which justices tend to agree the most, which don't agree the most. It's always interesting to dispel myths that are out there or maybe uh, confirm what, what everyone is thinking all along. And another one that's interesting is the opinions by sitting, which is 
the number of opinions that are written by majority opinions written by each justice for a given month. And the reason that's interesting is because sometimes there'll be an uneven distribution where one justice will write two opinions in a given month and then one justice will write zero. And that is often a signal to people that the, one of the justice who wrote zero sort of lost a majority opinion, that the majority sort of fell away and another justice got to write the opinion. Um, so it's interesting to see that because you get sort of inside look at, at the court and then you can try to match it up to the opinions to see what happens. Maybe viewing the, the past several terms since you've been working on the stat packs, uh, on, on the whole, are there any particular uh, either interesting or, or, or surprising trends that, that you've noticed? This is a, a pretty basic one, but one sort of interesting statistic that, that I can use at cocktail parties if I go <laughs> to the boring ones is that so few of the decisions from the court each year are five, are five to four. Those are certainly the cases um, that we hear about. Those are the ones in the press. But the statistics show that only about 20% of the merits opinions each year from the court are five to four decisions. And sometimes that's as low as 5%, um, like with October term 15 last year. So I think it's always been interesting to people that even though the five to four decisions get the, get the press and we talk about ideological splits on the court, um, the truth is about half or really about 45% of all cases at the Supreme Court are decided nine to zero, um, and many of those without any concurring opinions or, or splits. So it's always interesting to to sort of remind people that most of the decisions from the Supreme Court, or at least the plurality, are uh, nine to zero. And that phenomenon that you describe helps segue into chatting about this this past term. As you said, uh, unanimity was a feature of this past term, if you look at it um, statistically. But maybe to start, uh, do you have any thoughts kind of overall on this past term, really either in a, a quantitative or a qualitative sense, uh, just as a, as a court watcher yourself? I think this term and the last term, um, a lot of people notice sort of the lack of the, the high-profile decisions that we've come to see in, in recent years. Um, but I think in some ways it was sort of a throat clearing when Justice Scalia passed away and the court might have been reluctant to take some of the high-profile cases um, with only four members of the court. So I think that that would explain a lot of the trends that we saw last year um, because most of the court, most of the cases granted happened um, after Justice Scalia passed away when the court had four, eight people. And then um, many of the cases were also granted once the court realized that it was going to have eight people for a little while. So you would say that that fact probably goes a, a long way in explaining the higher than, than average unanimous opinion rate uh, in this past term, perhaps the, the court taking uh, fewer really hard and, and divisive ones? I think that's right. I think the court obviously has a discretionary docket, and there are some cases that it has to take. There are important issues, and they're, they're pressing. But I think in other ways, the court has some discretion about when to take um, circuit splits that it think might be divisive or might lead to a five to four case. And I think with eight, eight justices, it made sense for them not to take some of those cases. So um, we've seen a correction and I think next year will be, will be quite interesting and maybe a little bit less unanimous. There, there were some uh, split cases here, a few five to four cases this past term. And as usual, Justice Kennedy is really prominently featured in, in all of them as, as the reliable swing vote. On this court, I wanted to ask you, looking back over the past few years, how, how long has that been the case? How long has Justice Kennedy been sort of the justice to watch if you have a, a 5-4 breakdown? Certainly during the Roberts court, um, certainly during the Roberts court, Justice Kennedy has been 
and that's going back to October term 05, which started in October 2005. Um, Justice Kennedy has certainly been the justice most likely to be um, the swing vote or most likely to we call it frequency in the majority. So he's the most often in the majority of five to four decisions. Um, but before the Roberts court, um, when Justice O'Connor was on the court, I, th- I think many people would have, have thought of her as the swing vote in most cases, although um, I think Ke- Justice Kennedy was right up there. So I would say at least 2005, um, before that, it probably depended on the case a little bit more about whether Justice um, O'Connor or Justice Kennedy was, was at play. Digging a bit deeper into the statistical weeds here with the 5-4 opinions, there, there was one that was different as opposed to having just Justice Kennedy join the four uh, conservative justices or the four um, liberal justices. In one instance, you had uh, Justice Thomas join the, the four justices considered liberals uh, in, in a 5-4 case dealing with uh, gerrymandering. That was a, a pretty interesting split to, uh, to see there. That's right. Um that was a little bit unusual with Justice Thomas joining the, the four traditionally uh, liberal members of the court. I, in some ways, it wasn't. Um, that alignment has come up in recent years. It's actually um, the fourth most common alignment of five to four opinions. Um, the, most, the two most common are, of course, Justice Kennedy and then the uh, traditionally conservative or the traditionally liberal justices. And this alignment with Justice Thomas actually showed up in um, CSX versus McBride, a tort case um, several years ago, um, United States versus Aline, a criminal case about the sufficiency of allegations um, in an indictment, and then in Walker, um, which was a case about free speech on license plates and whether specialty license plates were government speech. So I think um, it's hard to, to find a common thread among those cases, but it's certainly shown up in the past where um, Justice Thomas joined the other justices. Do you have any thoughts as to what it is about Justice Thomas's jurisprudence? is known as a originalist, certainly. That, that might explain why that's a not-too-uncommon way to or split to, to find him in. I think Justice Thomas, um, maybe as much as any of the other justices, but is certainly willing to... Um, vote in a way that expresses his own sort of idiosyncratic views. He'll join, he'll write um, eight to one opinions. Um, he'll, he'll be the lone dissenter. Uh, Justice Thomas has also had a knack for writing short concurrences, uh, joining larger opinions to express his um, views on a case. So I think the fact that he's joining the other justices, um, maybe I'll leave it to someone else to figure out exactly what what uh, keeps those four cases together or what's the common thread, but um, it's not too surprising that he would he would sort of venture off uh, from the expected path. Dwelling uh, for another minute or two on the other five to four opinions, what uh, what were the fault lines this term that, that split the court uh, in the, that nearly even fashion? There weren't uh, as many sort of blockbuster, um, huge socially salient cases, but uh, obviously a handful that uh, divided the court here. Sure, there weren't as many of the big ones, but even the ones that did split the court five to four this year um, certainly had some some live issues. There was a Pena Rodriguez versus Colorado, a case about a juror making a statement that they had relied on racial stereotypes um, in reaching a verdict, and whether the court, whether the district court, could inquire more about that, um, or whether the district court had to stay out of it. So, the court there split. Uh, there were two habeas cases. Um, there was another 
really there's an interesting case about um, federal takings, Muir versus Wisconsin, where the court looked at what how to define sort of the scope of the plot when there's a takings analysis, whether you define it as um, you know the pond or whether you define it as the whole plot of land. Um, there's another case about um, the statute of repose for the Securities Act of 1933, and then there was a racial gerrymandering case, which of course um, attracted some attention this year. So, among the co- the common thread would be some of the hot button issues that the court did take, um, sort of uh, racial gerrymandering, the court looking into takings, and the court looking into. Um, Securities Acts and, and the Statutes of Repose. So, um, the sort of typical hodgepodge of cases that the court um, sort of struggles to to reach unanimity on. You mentioned that that one state you keep track of is a percentage of time or how often a justice will appear, and the the majority, which shows you know uh, that that justice pretty commonly will will be perhaps the swing vote in a five four case. Of course, um, that's yeah. that's most office justice Justice Kennedy. Um, from your time sort of working in the space, being familiar with folks that practice in the Supreme Court, does the fact that he is so reliably a, a swing vote that he is in the uh, majority this past term ninety seven percent of the time um, mean that folks will at least to some extent try to tailor their arguments uh, to make them uh, as palatable as they can to uh, Justice Kennedy in particular? Uh, well, I, I think you're right there when you said to some extent. Um, I think to the extent people can, I think they, they certainly try to. Um, if you're you're blessed with many different paths to choose from in your litigation, then um, people will certainly lean on cases written by Justice Kennedy or, or try to hew to, to liberty issues and federalism issues that he's particularly sensitive to. Um, but I think in other ways, litigants, by the time they reach the Supreme Court, are, are really locked into into what they're doing. In Mirror versus Wisconsin, for example, the various parties had their own sort of uh, unique favored tests that were would favor their approaches. So um, regardless of what they thought Justice Kennedy would like or not like, I think by the time you reach the Supreme Court, You've been through a few rounds of cases, and and you're a little bit locked into what you're doing. But um, I guess with that caveat, I think when there are cases or when there are issues that Justice Kennedy um, favors or when there are opinions that he wrote, I think litigants are certainly well advised to to cite those and and rely on them. Uh, You mentioned that the agreement numbers between justices who agrees with whom is an interesting statistic to track. Of course, we had a, a new justice join the ranks of the Supreme Court this term, Justice Gorsuch. Um, so tell me a bit about uh, the agreement numbers specifically as they related to uh, the, the new entrant on the court, Justice Gorsuch. Sure. Justice Gorsuch um, heard a total of 17 cases this year, which is a pretty decent sample size. Um, and within those cases, he had his highest rate of agreement with Justice Thomas. Um, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas actually had the highest rate of agreement overall for the term, agreeing in all of the cases that they both decided, um, all 17, that is. So he certainly had his highest agreement with Justice Thomas. Um, after that, Justice Gorsuch had a high rate of agreement with um, the other sort of traditionally conservative justices, um, that's Justice Roberts, Justice um, Alito. So I think um, we saw something that we sort of expected, that he would um, 
vote with those justices in many cases. Obviously, it'll be interesting to see what happens with a full complement of cases next year. Um, but for right now, we, we sort of saw what, what was expected. How much uh, variance do you see from year to year in those agreement numbers? I mean, one just probably assumes that, you know, by and large from year to year, Justice Ginsburg and, and Justice Alito probably won't agree on a whole heck of a lot. But is there is there variance from, from term to term to uh, as, as to that question? There is some variance from term to term. Um, I think many of the the closest combinations are the ones you might expect. But I think in other years, there's certainly some variation. Um, for example, last year, um, Justice Kennedy and Justice Kagan had the highest rate of agreement. And we also saw a high rate of agreement from Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan, uh, which some people might not have expected. So in some years, there are um, blips on the radar when you look across all the cases for which two justices um, agreed or, or disagreed the most. Um, I think last year when Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan agreed in so many cases, that might have caught some people by surprise. Talk to me a bit about the uh, oral argument. You guys keep track of sort of who the most uh, and least talkative justices are at that stage of, of the litigation. Who uh, who do those justices tend to be? The most talkative justices tend to be, um, and I'll just I'll talk about the last five years when we've been recording this statistic. Um, the last five years, the most talkative have been Justice Scalia, who is the most talkative, followed actually pretty closely by Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer. Um, so Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer, who are still on the court, of course, um, have sort of taken the mantle. And last year, for October term 16, the one that recently concluded, um, Justice Breyer was the most talkative. Um, the least talkative is, of course, Justice Thomas, who, who doesn't really ask too many questions these days. He asked a few questions at one oral argument last year, and before that it had been a decade since he'd asked a question at oral argument. And then after him... Uh, would be Justices Ginsburg, Alito, and the Chief Justice, who ask about 10 questions per argument. Obviously, Justice Gorsuch had fewer opportunities to ask questions joining the court fairly late in, in the term. Did he get a sense of sort of once he had a full term where he might fall in that, in that spectrum of talkative or laconic at, at oral argument? So uh, to give you a sense of scale, uh, Justice Breyer asked 20 questions per argument, and the, other, and the lowest justices argue, asked 10 questions per argument. Justice Gorsuch came in at 13.7 questions per argument. Obviously, he wasn't asking 0.7 questions, but his average was 13.7 questions, um, which was more than a few of his colleagues. So I think we've seen, in some instances, justice join, justices joining the court, asking relatively few questions in early years, and then increasing the number of questions in subsequent years. So we might see that with Justice Gorsuch. Um, for example, we've been doing these statistics on oral argument for five years now, and Justice Kagan has asked more questions in each subsequent year. So we've certainly seen um, a shift from some justices. So if Justice Gorsuch is starting at um, the middle of the pack, um, in a few years he might be asking more and more questions. But he's certainly an active member of the court and uh, an active member of the panels that he's been on. There's also quite a bit of dif differentiation between uh, the number of opinions that justices might write. As you said, uh, Justice Thomas is pretty economical with his words at oral argument, but he's not shy to, to pen an opinion, be it a majority uh, or perhaps more often concurrence or dissent, um, as opposed to some other justices like Justice Kagan, who tends to write fairly few opinions other than the majority of opinions assigned to her. Talk to me a bit about uh, that statistic. Sure. So um, Justice Thomas has 
really been um, the most prolific opinion writer over the last several years. Um, during the Roberts Court, he's written an average of 25 opinions, majority concurring or dissenting, per term, um, which 25 is, was second only to Justice Stevens's, who would write about an average of 28. So Justice Thomas has certainly been a prolific writer. Um, and actually, last year was, I think, even more dramatic. Um, he wrote 39 opinions. And considering that the court only decided 63 signed opinions and 80 total merits opinions, it's, I think, really, really a, a tremendous number, a huge volume. Um, but I think another thing to keep in mind is we track um, opinions over five pages. So to use kind of a crude shorthand, I'll call those substantive opinions. And if you look at just the longer ones, or what I'll call maybe the substantive ones, uh, Justice Thomas is closer to his peers. Um, if you look just uh, this year, Justice Thomas wrote 15 opinions that were more than five pages in length. Um, Justice Breyer and Justice Alito wrote 13, and Justice uh, Sotomayor wrote 14. So um, if you look at just the longer ones, um, the ones that go into a little bit more detail, um, he's a little bit closer to his peers. Um, but I think Justice Thomas certainly has a knack for writing the, the shorter opinions that elucidate kind of his views, um, even when he joins the majority um, or dissents with a larger group. One stat we, we haven't mentioned yet is the, the circuit scorecard, uh, keeping track of how different circuits around the country fared when their, their cases were brought up on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, talk to me a bit about how you've tracked that over the past few years, um, perhaps specifically as it relates to um, the circuit. Our, our listeners are in the Ninth Circuit. Folks will, will often hear about how the Ninth is the most regularly overturned. Uh, has that, that been the case as you tracked this uh, statistic going back a few years? Uh, and then how did the Ninth Circuit do this year as compared to, say, uh, other circuits in the, around the country? Well, I'll start with um, the, the easier question. This year, the Ninth Circuit was reversed in 88% of cases, which is a little bit higher than the average of 79%. So the Ninth Circuit was reversed just a little bit more than, than some of the others, um, but wasn't the most reversed circuit. Um, the other news is that if you look at the past, um, if you look at the Roberts Court era, um, the Ninth Circuit is the second most frequently reversed. The Ninth Circuit has been reversed in 81% of cases. The Sixth Circuit has been reversed in 83% of cases. So um, the Sixth Circuit gets the the distinction of the most reversed circuit. And actually, from October term 13 to October term, or October term 10 to October term 13, um, the Sixth Circuit was actually reversed in about 20 consecutive cases, a little bit more than 20 cases. So the Sixth Circuit has has had a, a little bit of a rough time in the Supreme Court lately, um, but the Ninth Circuit is right up there. But um, if someone tells you that the Ninth Circuit is the most frequently reversed, uh, you can you can you can correct them on that. Another one of those uh, boring cocktail parties. <laughs> um, exactly. Now, one thing you tracked last term, of course, because the the, the court had the the rare situation of being a an eight-member court for a period of time was how many times it, it split evenly, four to four. Um, that occurrence could have happened this year, but it, it did not in, in any cases. Um, were, were you surprised at all to see no even splits, or do you think the, the court planned that ahead of time and only really took cases they knew they could get five votes on? Well, I think I think you're right. Um, I think uh, it was a little bit surprising. Um, the previous year, the court split four to four on five um, on five cases, um, on four cases, rather, during October term 15. 
and then none last year. It is a little bit surprising, I think, with eight justices, um, even the best planning and, and the be- best anticipation can't exactly predict where the justices will end up, but um, the court got it right, at least, and, and there didn't end up being any. But I do think in some senses it was part of the planning. I think the justices, um, during the time they were granting these cases that would fill up the the recently concluded term, I think they, they knew they would have eight members for most of it, so they sure. picked right. Turning our focus to uh, the statistics that you tabulate that relate to the advocates, uh, the attorneys that appear before the court, what uh, what sort of different things did you see this term as it, as um, related to the attorneys uh, in in the Supreme Court? Well, well, we saw a few different things. The court going stepping back a little bit. The court um, argued fewer cases than it has in any recent years. Um, recent years means I think the post World War II era. Uh, which is not so recent. Um, so with fewer cases, there were predictably fewer attorneys arguing. Um, so this year we saw the lowest number of total advocates arguing that we've seen in a while. And I think that was, again, a, a problem of the fact that there were just, there's been a, a shrinking pie of arguments at the Supreme Court, and I think it, it shrunk a little bit more this year. You did also note that there were, uh, there was the highest percentage, I believe, of, of female attorneys that, that made appearances this year, correct? That's right. Um, there was I've, I've been um, tabulating this for six or seven years now, and we saw the highest percentage of female advocates arguing at the court. So that was certainly um, a welcome number. Um, I know Neil Katyal mentioned a little bit earlier this year that for the first time, perhaps for the first time ever, um, the Solicitor General's office has more fe- more men more women than men, um, which is a great sign of progress at the Solicitor General's office. Um, and I think that translated to arguments at the Supreme Court. Sure. Yeah, I noticed that as well, um, that the it the, the plurality uh, or the majority perhaps of the, the females that appeared were from the Solicitor General's office. The number is still below 20s, because we're not talking about getting anywhere super close to, to equal uh, numbers yet, right? That's right. That's right. Um, women appeared in 21% of arguments, um, or women were 21% of advocates who argued at the Supreme Court this year. So um, it's still far from far from even. Maybe starting to, to look ahead to, to the next term. As a, a statistician, as a compiler of these stat packs, I'd be curious to know kind of what, what things you're looking forward to, to taking a look at, uh, what things you might predict or presage as to October term 2017, and if you have any, any new projects or any new additions to the stat pack that, that might, uh, might be added in the next term. Well, within the stat pack right now, I think it'll be interesting to see um, Justice Gorsuch's development on the court, um, who he agrees with, um, his his frequency of writing opinions. This year, he wrote um, five opinions, majority concurring or dissenting, in only seventeen cases. So, if he continues to write in a third of his cases, he'll be he'll be competing with Justice Thomas for the most prolific. So, it'll be interesting to see how he develops in his first full term at the Supreme Court. As far as other projects, I think one that I'm, I'm really, really excited about is search stage data. It's been something that's been a little bit elusive or maybe a white whale for, for a little bit of time, but um, I've been compiling some search stage data to, to test out some hypotheses that have been bouncing around the Supreme Court bar for a little while. Um, one of them is that there are better times of year for cert petitions to reach the Supreme Court. So the sort of maybe old wives' tale has been that 
if you get a petition there over the summer, it could get lost in the mix and it might have a lower chance of being granted. If you get a petition up for conference in January or February, when the court is trying to finalize cases for the year and get in oral arguments for April, you have a higher chance of being granted because there are fewer petitions and there's more demand. Um, so we'll see if that pans out, but I'm excited to, to look at some of those numbers that search at the cert stage um, and see what we can find. Um, and another one is about categories, sort of thinking about subject matter categories of cases. Do um, civil procedure cases tend to be 5-4 decisions, or um, does a particular justice write more IP decisions or um, original decisions? So we're looking at a few different subject matter categories to try to see if there are trends that we can divine um, depending on the type of case. I, uh, and I know our listeners will certainly look eagerly forward to, to all that. Um, for now, Kadar Bhatia of Greenberg Torg, thanks uh, so much for joining us and for putting all uh, your, your efforts into this work. It's, it's uh, endlessly fascinating, and, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Last year, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services promulgated a rule that prevented any nursing home that receives Medicare or Medicaid funds from requiring residents to sign a mandatory arbitration agreement. The federal government had been concerned that nursing home residents tended to be unable to fully and fairly air their claims before an arbitration forum. Detractors of the rule said it would unnecessarily protract nursing home litigation and that arbitration was perhaps the better forum for the types of claims nursing home residents might bring. Now, after an adverse district court ruling and indications from the Trump administration that it is reconsidering the rule, its fate seems to be in severe jeopardy. Our next guest, Paul Bland, a public justice, has advocated on behalf of nursing home residents within and without the arbitration forum, and he's here to discuss why, in his view, that rule was a good one and why mandatory arbitration should not be a part of nursing home contracts. Mr. Bland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to participate. We're, we're chatting about a rule that was promulgated by the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services last fall, and uh, it's come up recently because the current administration is considering rolling back that rule. It never quite got implemented, as we'll, we'll get into, but maybe we can start by just talking about what that rule provides for, how it came to be. Uh, in the context here of arbitration clauses in contracts signed by folks admitted to uh, to nursing homes? So um, the way it came about originally was there was a growing body of evidence and a growing body of concern that um, arbitration clauses were being abused by nursing homes against uh, elderly patients and disabled patients. Um, so first of all, um, there's a lot of evidence that indicates particularly with disabled and elderly patients that the clauses are not voluntary. They're written in fine print and legalese. Um, there's a lot of empirical evidence that people tend not to understand them. Courts have enforced them. Even uh, one court in Florida, an appellate court, said that it was not even possible that the, that the um, patient could have conceivably understood the arbitration clause. She had had a stroke. She was extremely ill, but they were going to enforce it anyhow. So there's a serious issue about whether those clauses are voluntary. Then there's a very serious issue about that the arbitrators have a very strong tendency to be biased in favor of the industry. The nursing homes are the ones who write the arbitration clauses. They select the company that selects the arbitrator, or in some cases they select the individual arbitrator. And there's a, a great body of evidence that the, the arbitrators who they select really tend to favor nursing homes against um, individuals 
particular patients. Um, and this is something where, you know, the nursing home industry has actually taken sort of a different tack than banks and so forth. Most um, uh, sets of industries like the cell phone uh, companies and so forth, when they impose arbitration clauses on their customers, they say, well, this is actually better for the customer. You know, we're just doing this because it's a faster system or whatnot. The nursing homes actually explicitly come out and say through their lobbyists and their advocates that they, and they, they bring these clauses in to reduce costs and to reduce liabilities and that that's, that that's the purpose of the clause. Um, and then finally, there's an element, of, there's a very strong element of secrecy. Arbitration is not a transparent forum. What happens in the arbitration is frequently um, uh, never discovered by anyone outside. So I, I know of um, some places in the country where there were nursing homes where there were several cases brought in arbitration under the rules of the arbitration. All the facts were kept silent. And there, was, there were some nursing homes where they had issues where they had um, a couple of employees who were you know, sexually or physically abusing elderly women. And through the arbitration process, they're able to have a complete secrecy. Nothing ever gets out to regulators. Certainly nothing ever gets out to the press. And it's all covered up. So as a result of these kinds of concerns and widespread um, uh, uh, objections um, to, the, to the system, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, or CMS, um, adopted a rule that um, was issued on um, October 4th of last year, which essentially said that if a, a nursing home is going to get any federal funding, that it cannot say that it cannot um, uh, ask uh, the, the patients to sign an arbitration clause that says that if you have a dispute against the home, if you feel that they've committed malpractice or you, there's been an intentional tort against you or something like this, that you can't go to court, you have to go to arbitration. And what um, what CMS said was that those sorts of clauses would not be allowed. If, if a home was going to have those sorts of clauses, they would not be eligible for any federal funding. Um, the rule took effect, um, and then almost immediately afterwards, um, there was a lawsuit um, that was brought by the um, nursing home industry, essentially. And they filed it in a federal court in Mississippi. And this is this was something that was very common um, late in the Obama administration, that uh, and some agency would adopt a regulation that an industry didn't like, and they would bring a case either in Texas or Mississippi um, so that they could be in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which had the reputation for being the most conservative of all the Federal Court of Appeals. And so the, um, the judge in Mississippi, while expressing a lot of policy concerns that he, in fact, had seen a number of abuses of um, elderly and disabled people in nursing homes, still said that under the Federal Arbitration Act, he um, doubted that the rule was legal and entered a preliminary injunction. Now, some other challenges of similar rules had been rejected. So, for example, under the fiduciary rule, the rule that says that investment advisors have an obligation to investors, there's also a provision in that rule that was issued late in the Obama administration that bans the use of forced arbitration clauses and provisions that ban class actions. That rule was upheld by a federal judge in like a 90-page opinion. But anyhow, the CMS rule was struck down. Um, now, in the normal course of things, what would have happened is there would have been a... Um, uh, an appeal brought by the Justice Department and CMS to challenge the rule, uh, the, the, the court's decision um, in joining the rule, but then there was the election. And the new Justice Department waited and waited and waited, and then ultimately um, it switched its position and it did not, uh, it did not object when the um, American Healthcare Association moved to dismiss, to dismiss the appeal. So the Fifth Circuit then immediately dismissed the appeal before it was possible for anyone to intervene. You know, in a lot of settings um, where the Trump administration has not agreed with a regulation that had been adopted 
by um, the, uh, by an agency late in the Obama administration, um, the court will, when the Justice Department backs out and says, you know, we don't care about this regulation, um, the courts will typically allow um, uh, someone else who does have a great interest in the regulation to come in and intervene and take a, um, uh, uh, um, a position. And um, uh, this, the Fifth Circuit didn't allow that. So the rule was thrown out by a court and there was not a timely appeal of it. Notwithstanding that, um, the new development is that on um, June 5th of this year, CMS has proposed a new regulation that reverses the previous rule. And um, basically what they did was they went back and looked at comments that had been filed by nursing homes about the earlier rule. And they said that not allowing nursing homes to force um, senior citizens and disabled people into arbitration created a, quote, unnecessary burden on the providers. And they argued that um, uh, that lawsuits against nursing homes were really actually harmful to patients and that uh, be better off if patients weren't really able to bring lawsuits. And um, uh, and so CMS has proposed reversing the rules. Now, this has created a firestorm of um, opposition. Um, nearly every group that advocates for the rights of senior citizens uh, against uh, elder abuse, uh, every major civil rights group in America, all the major consumer groups, and a host of um, patients groups all came in and strongly objected to the new rule that would permit um, the use of forced arbitration clauses in nursing homes. Um, 30 senators wrote a letter, 31 senators, excuse me, wrote a letter to the um, agency that you know, strongly denounced the change. A number of state attorney generals came in and denounced the change. But it's, you know, it seems fairly clear that the Trump administration is um, you know, really committed to the idea of um, uh, sort of deregulating uh, 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 all sorts of different industries. And they're very in favor in a lot of different settings of the use of forced arbitration clauses. You know, someone uh, made a joke on um, social media that, uh, you know, that when the Trump administration said that uh, they're going to deregulate so as to encourage um, uh, innovation, that they were going to create new innovation in the area of elder abuse by uh, making sure that it's impossible to sue a nursing home that mistreated someone. Um, you know, I, I, I have a very strong view. Obviously, I'm an advocate. We signed on to a letter that objected to the rule changes, and we had filed extensive substantive comments in favor of the original rule that traced through, you know, the evidence of how um, secrecy, um, biased arbitrators, and involuntary clauses justify the rule. Um, I think it's um, really an outrage. I think that it's uh, going to be incredibly harmful to um, senior citizens. And I think that the idea that this but the election was about is um, really crazy to me. I think that this is uh, really an example of where, um, rather than cleaning up the swamp, that the president has actually you know, deepened the swamp. I think that there are very few people who uh, voted for the president who thought that when he was going to you know, make the country great again, that what he meant was that it was going to make it easier for a nursing home to commit elder abuse, to um, commit... Uh, um, medical malpractice against senior citizens. And some of the cases are really horrifying. So the other day, there was a case where there was a person who had severe Alzheimer's, and uh, the person needed to be um, watched all the time. They needed to, there's, there should have been a monitor on them, and they should have been in a place that had locked doors. And the home didn't take care of them, didn't pay attention to them, and they wandered outside, um, and this is in the south, and um, slipped and fell down an embankment 
and then was actually this person was actually killed by an alligator coming out of a um, uh, out of a nearby canal and um, chewing to death this senior citizen with Alzheimer's. The idea that um, you can't go to court for that, that you've given up your constitutional rights, and instead an industry-selected um, arbitrator um, is going to secretly decide this and no one should ever know about the case, I think most people would find that appalling. And I don't think that that, you know, uh, I don't, uh, I've seen a lot of polls in which you uh, describe arbitration and describe taking away constitutional rights to, you know, people who are self-identified as Trump voters, and they're, they're, they're aghast at the idea. The idea that um, you you give up your rights to um, uh, to you know defend yourself in court is not something that um, that the voters are for. But the nursing home industry spends a lot of money. They are very very big contributors. Um, the nursing home industry is increasingly concentrated. You know, there's been a series of mergers in which a smaller and smaller number of companies have taken over um, in this industry, and um, they're very very politically powerful. So I think this is an instance in which. The administration is going with their donors. I think they're completely ignoring the will of the voters. And I think what they're counting on is that um, people are going to be, you know, sidetracked. So the president's going to, you know, uh, throw out a tweet um, denouncing transgender people one day, or the president's going to throw out a tweet promising to bring fire to North Korea and so forth. And people will follow the bouncing ball. And they're, you know, they're sort of um, the administration-loving media just aren't mentioning this story at all. It's, uh, you know, you'll, you know, you don't see this story in that Breitbart or whatnot. And um, I think they think that if no one's paying attention, they can get away with it. But it's, it's a shame. It's really a, um, it's a, it's a dropping a crucial responsibility to senior citizens and the disabled. You obviously have a strong and impassioned stance on, on this issue. I, I'd like to maybe ask if, if you could maybe lay out for me as charitably as you, as you could that the, the reasoning that the lower court used or that the other side would present here maybe relating to first the what the ruling turned on that the Federal Arbitration Act as strictures I mean it is true that that statute does tend to encourage and smile upon arbitration as a general rule correct but there's no doubt about it so the the Federal Arbitration Act which was passed in 1925 has been repeatedly interpreted by the Supreme Court um, as uh, favoring the enforcement of arbitration agreements. Now, originally, the Supreme Court had said that it made arbitration agreements as enforceable as other contracts, but not more so. So they were supposed to be just like other contracts. Then at some point, the um, uh, Supreme Court enunciated a federal policy in favor of agreements to arbitrate. Then at some point, um, the, um, um, uh, the the Supreme Court enunciated a federal policy in favor of arbitration. So not agreements to arbitration. We were like, what happened to the agreement? And then at some point in the Concepcion case uh, in 2011, Justice Scalia, writing for a five to four majority of the court, said there's now an emphatic policy and federal policy in favor of arbitration. So, you know, the Supreme Court's very clearly said that it favors arbitration. Now, here the argument um, is, does the agency have a right in, you know, the, the CMS, like they wouldn't fund a, um, a nursing home. They wouldn't allow Medicare and Medicaid funds to be used in a nursing home that didn't use actual doctors, but instead used witch doctors or something, right? They, uh, it, there are all sorts of rules that CMS imposes for the um, safety and welfare of patients. Um, the question is, is, do those rules, does that power under the Act to make sure that patients are well taken care of um, give CMS the authority to say that arbitration clauses will be um, overridden? Then I, I think that also in, the industry would also make arguments that would say, 
arbitration is cheaper than court. Um, and I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, doubt about whether that's true, but it's, it's certainly cheaper for court if the arbitrators are going to overwhelmingly rule for the industry than the industry is paying out a lot less money. Um, arbitrations do tend to be faster than court proceedings, in part because a lot of arbitrators um, won't allow the individuals, the patients, to take depositions or discovery. So if you have the more streamlined uh, um, a process you have, it can be faster in a lot of cases, although there are some arbitrations that go on for years. Um, but um, uh, the main thing that, um, uh, that the industry has argued is that there are too many lawsuits against nursing homes that um, a lot of people tend to be sort of biased or have negative um, assumptions about nursing homes so that the nursing homes end up having to pay out money even when they didn't really do anything wrong and that there's a lot of these lawsuits turn out not to be well-grounded, but they just you know sort of inflame the prejudices of the um, jury. Um, and so... Um, you know, that, that's really the argument that they're making. You know, as, as you said, the, the CMS now, as the original rule has been um, struck down, um, is thinking of revisions, and uh, you, you've mentioned one of the maybe predominant problems with arbitration agreements and contracts like this is the fact that they'll often be hidden in fine print and tend to surprise folks. Um, the, the CMS has said that one revision could be to make sure that nursing homes would make clear to, to patients that were enrolling that, you know, hey, there is an arbitration clause in this contract. Here's what it means. Uh, you can take it or, or leave it. And so in that instance, the, the fine print surprise type problem wouldn't exist. But I take it that wouldn't really solve the, the entire problem here in your mind, right? Well, no. I, so I think that one thing that happens is um, the vast majority of people um, in America um, are confused about what the idea of arbitration means. And um, so, you know, as a piece of evidence for this, in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau study of the use of arbitration clauses in lending contracts, um, one of the things they did was they, they looked at a piece of evidence that was a survey that was done where the surveyors um, got a, a sample of people, I can't remember how many, say 300, 500, maybe even 1,000 people, and they give them like $30 and say, we want you to fill out a survey. And so they would hand them um, a, a credit card agreement and then ask them a bunch of questions. And so no, no one knew about the arbitration clause just from being looking at the overall agreement. Then they would actually take the paragraph that had the arbitration clause, blow it up and hand it to them and say, read this. And then after the people read the arbitration clause, they would say, um, uh, so if you had a dispute against a credit card company, you go to court, and only 7% of people who had just read the arbitration clause had an understanding that um, um, uh, only 7% understood that that meant that they couldn't bring a case to court. Um, and so also you have to look at the reality of the way, um, uh, the way the intake process works at nursing homes. Essentially, you know, a lot of nursing homes, not nearly all, but a lot of nursing homes already have arbitration clauses where what the, what, where what the uh, fine print says is if you don't want the arbitration clause, you don't have to sign it, we'll still treat you. Not all, but some, some say that. What happens is when a patient or the, or the family member of a patient goes in to admit somebody, they receive a um, form that um, uh, is, say, seven or eight pages long. And there's um, like a yellow sticky at three, page, three different parts of the form, and then there's a one at the, on the last page. And they say, please sign um, on the last page and then initial three places where there are yellow stickies. And one of those is the arbitration clause. And what happens is, and, and I've, I've seen depositions of people working at the nursing homes, 
I've seen I've seen people who are experts in consumer behavior. What happens is nearly everybody, you know, they are totally absorbed with what does it mean to go into the nursing home. If you're the, if you if it's your parent, you're thinking, you know, am I going to see them again? What's going to happen to them? What is it going to be like? Are they going to be afraid? There are frequently people who are in pain. There are people who are in medicines. People sign in the places where they're asked to sign. And so what CMS is doing, in my view, is a complete formality. People are going to be given a piece of paper and asked to sign it. And what CMS is saying is, oh, well, if you read all the words in the piece of paper, you would know what your rights are. And they know that people are not going to read the rules. So this is, a, this is something that's proposed by the industry to sort of give them cover. And um, I myself, I'm not, I'm not persuaded by it. Um, and I think that the language, you know, um, you look who's supporting this. I mean, the people who are really pushing this rule are the nursing home industry and their trade association and other healthcare groups. And the people who are opposing the rule are all the consumer groups, the patient advocacy groups, um, AARP, you know, groups that deal with elder abuse, um, state attorney generals. You know, um, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, um, it's window dressing. So just just to clarify the the state of the rule, then, if it was promulgated last year and then um, it was struck down at the district court and the appeal time has has elapsed, that essentially is is null at this point, right? The the original rule from last year. Well, I think that if the if the agency wanted to enforce it, then it would only be uh, then I think that there would be a question as to whether or not um, a district court decision in Mississippi. Is uh, uh, can can have the preclusive effect of banning the rule from operating nationwide. Um, I think could imagine someone challenging this rule in you know a different circuit, saying that the rule is justified and that the um, that the district court got it wrong and that it was there was not a final conclusion from an appeal. But I think that there would be an argument that the district court's ruling is final, so the rule's already disappeared. But I think that the industry obviously is very concerned that if the rule remains on the books, that the agency were to decide to enforce it, you know, something excitingly different were to change in the government all of a sudden, um, that uh, that they have a problem with it. So they've gone and pressured the agency to officially, re, re, um, you know, um, revoke the rule. Okay, maybe just uh, one last one, kind of looking ahead from what you know about the situation and the, the, the stakeholders involved in the parties on, on either side of the issue, sort of how do you see this... Um, this fight over this rule playing out, and who do you see as the principal kind of actors that will be involved in, in its eventual outcome? Well, um, um, I think that uh, CMS is going to, you know, they, certainly the signals from the administration are that CMS seems likely to ignore the comments by the attorney generals and the consumer and civil rights groups and so forth and go ahead with their rule. Then I expect there will be a legal challenge against it brought by, you know, AARP or some group that focuses on elder abuse. And they're going to argue that it's counter to the evidence, that there was a great deal of evidence about the harm of secrecy, the harm of bias, the harm of it, of it being involuntary, and that CMS has a legal obligation to ensure the safety and well-being of patients um, under their, um, you know, under, under their, uh, that, uh, you know, to whom they're responsible. Um, how will that litigation take place? What court will it take place in? You know, I don't know, but uh, my guess is that... Um, I guess is that this fight is not over, that there's going to continue to be litigation, except now the litigation will be with the agency trying to support the nursing home um, um, industry and, um, and opposing the patients. For now, we'll go ahead and, and leave it there and, and watch this uh, develop. But uh, thank you, Paul Bland of Public Justice, for, for joining the show to, to lay out these various thank points for me. Thank you so much for giving me a chance.
chance to give my, my viewpoint. We've we've represented a lot of um, um, patients in nursing homes who we thought were, were treated incredibly badly, and we've been advocating on their behalf for years, and this is something that we care very deeply about. With that, our program for August 18th, 2017 is complete. I'd like to thank this opportunity once more to thank both of my guests, Kadar Bhatia, greenberg Troig, and Paul Bland of Public Justice. Thank you also for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Do not forget that CLE credit is available to podcast listeners. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.